0: hey guys welcome back to the toxic mom podcast this is episode three of season two this is a continuation from episode one in regards to derek chauvin's trial opening statement started on monday and they have since recessed court until monday at 9 15. so this week the state and the defense laid out their case to the jury. The state, of course, is accusing Derek Chauvin of murder. The highest count of murder he is charged with holds a sentence up to 40 years if he's convicted of that charge, and if he's convicted of the very lesser charge of third degree, he faces up to 10 years. 10 years, to me, is still a pretty significant time, but it's not enough for someone um in this situation and the nature of the crime that was committed. So the defense put up their case. I'll talk about them first. Their case is based on an overdose that they're accusing George Floyd of having. And this was the cause of death, not Derek Chauvin's knee. They are also saying the three officers that were involved with this, in addition to Derek Chauvin, were unable to properly render care and look after Mr. Floyd's overall well-being because of the bystander's aggressive nature towards them. They felt that their safety was jeopardized and George Floyd's safety was jeopardized. So again, they are saying Derek Chauvin's knee did not cause this man to die. On May 25th, 2020, the state is accusing Derek Chauvin of using deadly lethal force against Mr. Floyd, and that is why he died. That's it in a nutshell. So testimony started with 19 witnesses this week. I'm not going to go through every single witness. I will just talk about some that stood out in my mind. And I really want to talk about the paramedics that testified this week because some of their actions to me were very concerning. And I was getting a lot of jabs on Twitter when I made statements about these paramedics. And I kinda wanna touch on that to clear up why I said this. Because the comments I was getting, I feel like people just weren't understanding. And it's very difficult to speak your mind on a social media platform, especially when you're limited to 140 characters. So anyway, Jenna Scurry was the very first witness to come to the stand. She was the 911 dispatcher who went through pretty much from the time she got the call from the Cup Foods about the $20 bill being phony up until she alerted Derek Chauvin sergeant that she thought something bizarre was going on when she was able to view footage of the arrest from a police camera across the street from the Cup Foods. So she was the very first person to testify. And she's been a 911 dispatcher for a long time. They went through her history like they do with every witness. They always ask them their name and their background and how long they've been doing their current job. And if it relates to the case, and they go a little bit through that. So she did that. And she was made uneasy when she was viewing this body camera, or not body camera, this camera footage. She noticed that the police car was rocking back and forth. At one point, she thought the camera had froze because the officers had been sitting on George Floyd. So she didn't realize that the camera was still running. And I think when she realized the camera was still running, it was kind of alarming to her because it had been a long time that they were sitting on this man. So she called, um, over to the authorities and that spectrum who connected her to a sergeant. And she alerted the sergeant that perhaps something was going on that he needed to take a look at. And, um, That's how a lot of things got escalated from there. Uh, The state played the video during their opening statements of George Floyd's arrest and death. It was my very first time seeing that video from start to finish. I told you guys before I had never watched it. I saw clips of it, but it was just a little too disturbing for me to watch. And I finally decided to watch it because I wanted to watch the trial And I wanted to really be um, exposed to everything that the jury was going to be exposed to. So I watched the video and it was very, very disturbing. And they played the body camera footage of that day. And that was even more disturbing than the actual video from the bystanders because you were up close and personal with these cops while they're on top of this man who's begging for his life. And the one thing that stood out to me uh, immediately was the paramedics that arrived on the scene. So that's why I said I will touch base on that towards the end and um, circle back as to why I made the comments I did on my social media platform. So as the week went on, they started calling the bystanders that were there recording and in a sense begging the police officers to get off of this man so he could breathe. Donald Williams was the younger black male in the video. They called him to the stand. He has an extensive history of martial arts, MMA, training, wrestling. So he's very familiar with chokeholds and he's very familiar with restraining people against their will because of his background with that type of sport and that type of lifestyle. He was heard on the video, um, telling Derek Chauvin to get off of his neck he couldn't breathe and Derek Chauvin just would not let up and in Part of his testimony, he was describing the movements that he felt Derek Chauvin was doing. He was using the word like a shimmy. And he said he was shimmying his knee into his neck. And this is the reason why George Floyd was moving his body the way he was, because he was trying desperately to get air into his lungs. And... When it came time for his cross examination, the defense almost treated him like a hostile witness. Well, they did treat him like a hostile witness. It was quite a bit of back and forth. And that's not uncommon in a cross-examination because most people know when you're being cross-examined, they're trying to get information out of you in a different way to try to make you say something a little bit differently than you did on direct examination. So it's really not straightforward questioning. And at times, Donald and Uh, Mr. Nelson, the defense attorney, sort of started butting heads. The judge did have to intervene a couple of times, but overall, I think the jury got the point that Donald Williams was trying to make. And to me, he was a very credible witness in his information he gave and the fact that he witnessed this. and, And he knew that George Floyd, in his mind, could not breathe. So he was a very interesting witness. And something that I noticed he was doing when he was speaking about these events that he saw, he was looking over at Derek Chauvin the entire time, you know, looking him in the eye, just letting him know, like, hey, I know what you did and what you did was wrong. So that was interesting. There was another witness there uh, that stood out. His name was Mr. McMillan. He was the older Black gentleman that was one of the first people to arrive and sort of see from start to finish of what was going on. He said he was driving by. He decided to park his car. And what he described as he was just being newsy. And he got out of his car, walked around, and he saw this struggle going on. And you can hear him in the video trying to kind of talk to George and just let him know you're not going to win. Just get in the car. George was telling the police officers that he was claustrophobic, he was even at one point saying, okay, on the count of three, I'll get in the car, but the cops were shoving him in, just really trying their hardest to push this man in this car, and he was in a complete, full-blown panic attack, and he was trying to let them know that, you know, could we do this a different way, and you could hear Mr. McMillan in the background sort of trying to assist George in trying to calm him down. And at one point he broke down into tears on the stand because he felt like he was helpless towards Mr. Floyd. And once he realized the cops had got him on the ground, on the other side of the car, and he heard George start to beg for his life, that he couldn't breathe. He felt like he knew it was over for him at that time. So he was very emotional on the stand. It was pretty, pretty hard to watch this man break down in tears over this. They also called... a couple of minors. One very important one they called was, uh, her name was Darnella. She was the one, I believe that was her name. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. She was the one that recorded this video. She, this is the video that was seen around the world was from her cell phone. She had been walking with her cousin who was nine, who also testified. Uh, she was walking to the store with her. She got her cousin in the store and she came back because she she was coming around at the time that the police had had George on the ground. And she heard this man screaming. She said one of the first things she heard was him saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And she said he was screaming out for his mom and telling his children, tell my children I love them. And and she also became very emotional on the stand. Uh, Her face was blocked because she was a minor at the time, so they did not show her face, but you could hear what she was saying, and she was very emotional. She says there's times at night that she talks to Mr. Floyd and just apologizes because she felt like she could do more. And, you know, it, it was just all these bystanders were coming on and just chipping away at the fact that this is what they were seeing, they were hearing, they were screaming at the cops, Um, I wouldn't even say they were screaming. They were upset and they were begging the police to get off of this man's body. And there was an off-duty firefighter that testified. She was taking a walk, minding her business and saw the commotion and she came on and I thought she was very credible because she wanted to help and intervene And when she saw that Mr. Floyd became unresponsive, she told them they needed to check a pulse. The state sort of asked her to walk them through what she would have done as if she was treating Mr. Floyd and she went through all that. Again, she was an off-duty firefighter so she has first responder training. And she became emotional on the stand. And uh, at one point, the judge gave her a warning from the bench that she is to answer Mr. Nelson's questions um, in a yes or no way, because similar to Donald Williams, there was some back and forth going on and there was some things that Mr. Nelson was saying to her that she just wasn't agreeing with. In particular, she was di- disputing the time frame that the paramedics were called um, until they got there because she thought it was too long. So she became overcome with emotion, and you know, it was just really, really hard to look at these people who were just minding their business, going about their everyday activities, who just came upon this. What we know now is a crime scene and a murder. And two of them ended up calling 911 while they were standing there. Donna Williams and the off duty firefighter, her name is Genevieve Hansen, called 911 and said that, you know, that they pretty much witnessed a murder. And that was the exact words that Donald Wilson used in his 911 call. He said, I just witnessed what I believe to be a murder. And then she called and she said that she saw a man that was not resisting and he became unconscious and the police did nothing. And she felt that what she saw was criminal. So now we have the 911 dispatcher alerting the sergeant that something odd was going on. You have paramedics that were alerted to the scene as well. You have fire that was alerted to the scene because they showed up. And now you have two people calling 911 at pretty much the same time saying they felt what they saw was a criminal act So I can't imagine what's going on behind the scenes as far as these dispatchers getting calls to this one scene. And then you have sergeants being alerted. So it was a lot going on and it was very overwhelming. So um, watching the video, I kind of now get it. I kind of understand why everyone was upset. Because it's one thing to look at a video and hear them in the background, but it's another thing to actually hear and watch them testify as to what they saw and how they felt. So it it was pretty, pretty interesting. And to me, it was sort of chipping away at the defense's theory that this crowd was hostile. Because if you watch the video and you listen to what they're actually saying on the video, they were not hostile. They were not trying to charge the police. There were times where, yes, they stepped off the curb because they were, you know, looking at Mr. Floyd and just trying to just alert this officer that, hey, you guys need to do something here. He went from talking and screaming and, you know, sort of moving to now nothing. And they just weren't listening. Um, So that brings me to the paramedics. Uh, The paramedics, it was two of them that arrived on the scene. And when I first watched the video again, I had to watch it twice. Because what stood out to me was the paramedics. And I just wanted to watch it again to make sure I wasn't seeing something and my mind wasn't playing tricks on me. The paramedics were very, very nonchalant in how they even approached the scene. They both got up and testified that the call came in and it was a non-urgent call. It was for a face injury So they said that that means that no lights or sirens are required. Then in the course of that, it became what they classify as a code three. And that means it's urgent, get there as fast as you can, lights and sirens need to be utilized. And so they pulled up and they were taking their time getting to Mr. Floyd. It wasn't, you know, they were running or anything. And the way they were retelling the story was exactly how they were acting in the moment. They were retelling the story very slowly, and that's how they approached. The one paramedic, Derek Smith, was the second one to testify. And he said when he got there, he took a pulse and he checked to see if he took his um, his light out and he shined it in Mr. Floyd's eyes to assess his pupils and saw that they were fixed and dilated. Now, I didn't see him do that when I first watched the video. So I actually paused that testimony and I went back and I watched it. I shouldn't have paused it because I didn't realize they were going to play it. But I said in my mind, I don't recall seeing him take a pulse when he first got there. But I went back and I did see him taking a pulse. And then I saw him with his pen light shining the light into Mr. Floyd's eyes. And I completely had missed that. So after that, he said that he had no pulse. And his eyes were dilated. And he... Said in his words, in layman terms, he thought the patient was dead, and um, I just said, "Okay, now I've seen codes because that's what we in medical world." Call these situations. It's a code. In the hospital, it's called a code blue, which means their person's heart has stopped. Out in the field, it's just called a code cardiac arrest. So after that, it was almost like he really and his partner really didn't want to go through the motions of administering life-saving care so they sort of did what they needed to do because they had an audience and the way they moved mr floyd off of the ground onto the sheet and onto the gurney was horrible They were dragging him like he was a piece of meat. There was no protection of airway, head, nothing. You know, the one medic said, well, we moved him that way because we noticed that he was unresponsive and he had, he was unable to hold his head up. But I didn't agree with that. I didn't agree with that's the reason why he moved him. If you watch that video, they yank him over so fast and he's still in handcuffs. None of the officers even attempted to say, okay, hey, the medics are here. Let's get the cuffs off of him so we can get him on this stretcher. I, I don't know. I, I got very upset looking at that. It was it was horrible. I have never seen paramedics act the way they did. And I've been around paramedics. I, I've done ride-alongs with paramedics. When I worked in the emergency room, um, I've seen how paramedics act in an emergency and even in a non-emergency. And these two guys were so lackadaisical, and I described it yesterday, they stood there like wet noodles. You know, and and people just couldn't understand why I was questioning what was going on here because I said, you don't even have to be a medical professional to realize that these paramedics acted as if there was nothing urgent going on. And the way that they yanked his body over, and, and it, that was just very appalling to see. you know, I, I was embarrassed as a medical professional to see that. And you know, this is not how paramedics that I know and I've seen operate on a day-to-day basis, especially when you realize that your patient has no pulse. And I, I don't understand why that code wasn't started right then and there. It should have been started on the street. Or if they really didn't want to do it on the street, they should have started it as soon as they got him on the gurney. You can do chest compressions on the gurney. I've seen paramedics sitting on top of a patient on a gurney doing chest compressions. And they did nothing. They got him into the ambulance. They went back and reassessed for pulse. Again, I counted three times, it might've been four or five. So now they're over assessing someone who they already determine as being dead. Why? It was completely unnecessary. Once you've established that there's no pulse, CPR needs to be started immediately. Not when we get him inside the truck and reassess the pulse three or four times and oh, let me take my time and and, and get the AED pads on them. And let me take his shirt off and, oh, and then let me take the handcuffs off because the the four cops decided not to do that. And I was questioning, but the paramedic answered the state's question, well, how did you have access to take the cuffs off? Because he said he had a cuff key. So that goes back to the egregious behavior of Derek Chauvin and the other three officers that They didn't even care because they didn't even take the cuffs off to allow the paramedics to even really start proper care. They did so much to George Floyd before they even started what needed to happen. And this is what should have happened. As soon as they got there and they realized that this man was pulseless, They should have taken full control of that scene because they are the ones that had the advanced medical training, not the paramedics. The paramedic was upset that Minneapolis Police Department didn't start chest compressions, and he made that known on the stand. But now that you see what you're dealing with, you're dealing with four cops who are acting very out of character and they had every opportunity to take control of that scene. Paramedics I've seen move police officers out the way. They move the crowd back. You know, they get control of the scene. And then you also had fire show up. The fire department was also on scene. So now you have a whole lot of people with authority that, were available and what he said i needed all hands on deck but he didn't use all hands on deck they did not thomas lane started chest compressions but if you look at the time stamp from the time they got him off of the floor or excuse me the ground onto the stretcher into the ambulance after they reassessed him three or four unnecessary times then they start chest compressions that was five minutes it's okay to think, okay, he's dead, but you still have to follow protocol. I've called 911 on patients I knew were dead, said that to the dispatch. Paramedics still showed the patient was cold and purple, and I've seen paramedics still hook them up and start life saving care, even though they knew that they were gone. So there's no reason you have a warm body on the street. You should have acted a lot faster and treated this man with a little bit more respect and dignity than what you did. And then I couldn't believe that they moved the ambulance. They moved the ambulance because they wanted to get out of harm's way because the crowd was there. Okay, and, the crowd was happy to see you guys pull up. They weren't going to interfere with your care, and they knew that. They knew that this was not their first time interjecting um, or interacting with police officers with a crowd around because they said that on the stand. So that's why for those of you that were on my page uh, criticizing my comments and bashing me, these paramedics were negligent and to me their actions were criminal. I like to know what kind of discipline went through because it's clear as day on their camera footage that they, there was an extreme delay in care of Mr. Floyd. Everything they were doing was just going at snail's pace and completely over the top and unnecessary. And that's why I again feel that these paramedics were negligent in their actions. They really could have cared less if George Floyd lived or died because they had no urgency at all, at all. And it really was disturbing as me, a medical professional who I've seen codes, I've started codes, I've participated in them on children, on on teenagers, on adults, on elderly. I've I've been there. I know what it's like to run a code, and this was done poorly and very and and it, and it costs Mr. Floyd his life. Now, granted, he probably was like that paramedic said, beyond repair when he got there, but you still have a job to do. And it it just to me they they failed they they failed miserably and i will never apologize for how i feel especially when i know that x y and z could have been done and it was not done and there's other people like i said that noticed that are not even medically trained that looked at that and was wondering why these two were moving at a snail's pace and did all of this other extra nonsense instead of what they needed to do and, and start care. Cause that one paramedic at the end, he didn't seem like he had a personality where he holds back. He seems like he's right to the point and, and says what he wants. And to me, his personality could have overrode those four cops And and you're gently tapping him to get off. No, you physically move him off your patient. Your patient has no pulse. Your patient is dead in the street. You move that cop off of him and you get started. So I, I don't know what happened there. Those are not two paramedics that I would want to have around if I were in a life-threatening emergency or somebody I knew or cared about was in a life-threatening emergency because they just seemed like, I don't know. I I don't know, but that's all I'm gonna say about that. I wanted to clear that up because the amount of ridiculous comments I was getting today uh, from people that just were not getting it. And it wasn't that they weren't getting it. Once I broke it down, They just still were firing, you know, but, you know, it it is what it is, you know, it is what it is. There's a lot of people who don't think like I think, or, you know, there's a lot of people out there who see it from a different perspective, but I don't consider them heroes. And I would love to know what kind of disciplinary action they face once their superior view that footage. And if they didn't get any disciplinary action, that's, that's a concern. And that's pretty, pretty sad and pathetic. So that's all I will say on that. So um, the, the last two people that I want to talk about that took the stand that I felt were pretty damning to uh, Derek Chauvin's defense's um, case were his former sergeant and his former lieutenant. The sergeant that got the phone call from Jenna Scurry, the 911 dispatcher, uh, did arrive on scene after all of this took place and was made to believe by Derek Chauvin that this was a medical emergency and this is why Mr. Floyd was taken to the hospital. He got to the hospital not too long after that and, well, first I want to backtrack. He had called Derek Chauvin on the phone after Jenna Scurry uh, called him. Well, after she got connected with him and he sort of called Derek to kind of see what was going on. And I can't remember, and I apologize because there was so much to watch and I don't have my notes in front of me. Um, I can't remember if he got an answer from him once he did call him on the cell phone. I know at one point He did get a hold of Derek Chauvin, but there was really no conversation because he said by then he was pretty much around the corner and he let him know that. And then the conversation ended. So when he got on scene, he asked, you know, what had happened. And Derek Chauvin had told him that the the suspect had a medical emergency and that was why he had to be taken down to the hospital. So he went down to the hospital and he got intel from the nursing team in the emergency room that it was not looking good for Mr. Floyd. The exact words he used was the patient was doing poorly. And so then he called Derek Chauvin and then asked him, um, was there any type of force used? And then Derek Chauvin did finally offer up information and had let him know that force was used on Mr. Floyd. So I thought that was interesting because he never let his sergeant know in the beginning of the initial contact that uh, force was used. And his name was Sergeant David Ploger, I believe. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right but he has since retired Um, and they were really kind of sort of going into um, a really good question and answering session with him. And at one point the state did ask, um, at what point do you feel that the force should have been let up? And he said, when Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended their restraint. So once they got George Floyd on the ground, or even in handcuffs, um, he felt that the restraint should have no longer been used. So he was a very good witness. And he also, um, when he got back to the scene, um, Actually, Derek Chauvin and the Asian officer, Tu Tao, came, Um, it was the two paramedics that treated Mr. Floyd. It was Tu Tao, the other officer being charged with Derek Chauvin for this murder. And Derek Chauvin, they were all standing, um, what it looked like in the emergency room, outside the room where they were working on George Floyd. And I found that interesting because we've now started to kind of see Derek Chauvin and his demeanor after this. And he was very, very calm. And I think he had to remain calm because I don't think he wanted to set off his sergeant that something sinister happened here. So to me, what I found interesting was him not coming forward with the information that force was used. Because now we're starting to get into the mindset of Derek Chauvin after this. Did he withhold that information because it's not normal routine that he would have given that information? Or did he with Told that information because he felt that he possibly did something wrong and he really didn't want to disclose that to his sergeant. That's what I was wondering if the jury was kind of thinking like, hmm, your sergeant asked you a question and you told him this. But then the sergeant had to call you back to get more information. So I thought that was pretty telling. And then we're finally hearing George, um, excuse me, uh, Derek Chauvin on camera, conversations he's having with his sergeant. So now we're putting a voice to the face because he's kind of just been sitting there. He's had nothing to say. He doesn't need to say anything. His defense team is speaking for him. But now we're kind of hearing what he sounds like, his demeanor, And he at one point said to um, one of the witnesses that, oh, George was a very sizable guy and, you know, stuff like that. So that was interesting. The four officers also were asked to get witness statements. And uh, in particular, Derek Chauvin was told by his sergeant to get witness statements. And he said that was going to be kind of hard because they were hostile at the moment. And his sergeant pretty much said, you still have to get witness statements. But little did he know that obviously there was going to be a major problem with Derek Chauvin and the other three officers trying to get witness statements because those witnesses were also calling 911 on the four of them. So I don't know if, and I wish the state would have asked him, um, were you made aware that two other people were called on your officers, um, you know, as this was taking place. So we never really got an answer out of that. I really wish I could have, um, heard what he had to say. Cause I can't imagine that being a very, um, good moment for him knowing that there was people calling, uh, police on his, police on police. So, um, So then we get to the final witness of the day, which was today, before they went off. And man, did he end with a bang. I thought his uh, testimony was very, very damning and credible and extremely um, eye-opening. And this is what the jury went home with for the weekend. Uh, Lieutenant... Richard Zimmerman, who's been a police officer since the early 80s, was on stand today. And whenever things like this happen in uh, the street, if a suspect uh, dies in police custody or a suspect is injured in police custody, it seems like a lot of people are contacted and made aware of things going on. And he said he was home Um I believe he said it was his day off and he got a phone call and he had to come to the scene. And when he got there, um, you know, the scene had been taped off because it's now considered a crime scene. He noticed that the squad cars were still there and the suspect's car, whose George Floyd was still there. There was police there. There were other sergeants there, lots of things going on. And you know, he walked them through what normally happens in that type of situation. The officers are brought down to what he said was City Hall, and they're all questioned and investigated. And I guess any witnesses that are there, uh, statements are taken, and they're interviewed, um, you know, and then obviously, if there's anything on camera, the sergeants and lieutenants and and all review that subsequent um, evidence and act accordingly. So um, when he finally got on the stand, he of course went through his years of training. And again, he's been an officer a very long time. And now he's, you know, he worked his way up and he's a lieutenant and he was the highest ranking member um, there that night. Obviously he has a captain that he works under, but at that time he was considered the highest of the highest that were there on on scene. So um, he, you know, explained everything that goes on and everything he did. And then the state, of course, started asking him questions in regards to what he uh, was trained in. In specific, they asked him about neck restraints. And he said that he was never trained to kneel on someone's neck. And he says a neck restraint is considered a top tier uh, deadly restraint. And he says that, um, you know, it's not something that they pretty much recommend these police officers do. And I actually want to quote him. So let me just pull up what he said because I want to make sure I get his quote in because I thought it was very, very interesting what he said. He was asked about the crowd and he said the crowd didn't pose a threat from what he saw. And um, this is what he said in regards to the neck restraint being the top tier deadly force. If your knee is on someone's neck, that can kill him. So when he said that, my jaw dropped. And I can't imagine the jury's jaw didn't drop. Because now we have two superiors over top of Derek Chauvin and the other three officers who are rendering um, decisions based on what they saw. What they saw, they did not um, agree with. And so I'll play a little bit of his testimony because I have it here. This is the state speaking to him. you've been working for the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, been trained to kneel on the neck of someone who is handcuffed behind their back in a prone position? No, I haven't. Is that, if that were done, would that be considered force? Absolutely. What level of force might that be? That would be the top tier, the deadly force. Why? Because of uh, the fact that um, if, if your knee is on a person's neck, that can kill him. That was Minneapolis police. And so that was what he said. Uh, I'm not sure if the defense was expecting that comment to be made. And he just really went on to say that what he saw in his mind was unnecessary And the amount of time that Derek Chauvin spent on Mr. Floyd's neck was uncalled for. And um, I'm pretty sure he's one of the ones that uh, made the decision that these four officers need to be relieved of their duty. So the defense got on and was really hounding him on, because they're trying to lay their groundwork, really hounding him on his training. You know, well, it's been a long time since you've been a street cop and on patrol, and he agreed with that. And they were really questioning him about the last time he went through a training class. And, you know, but he, up to that, said some pretty interesting things about laying on in the prone position, what's which is lying on your stomach, and when you're handcuffed, your muscles are being pulled back. When you're laying on your stomach naturally without your muscles being pulled back, um, you're not breathing efficiently. Your vital organs are, in a sense, being crushed because you're laying on top of them. So that's why it's very uncomfortable for any of us to kind of really lay and get comfortable on our stomachs. And so when you have that going on, on top of being handcuffed, your breathing is being uh, restricted. So he said once, and the other uh, sergeant also said, you know, once they're in the prone position and you got them handcuffed and settled, you want to flip them over to their side. And from what we saw on the video, this was not done at all. And I'm pretty sure he was one of the ones that was in the decision making of letting uh, Derek Chauvin and again the other three officers go. So that's what the jury heard. And that's what they went home with. They went home with uh, a lieutenant who is a superior over top of his sergeant and over top, you know, and obviously over top of Derek Chauvin, um, sort of kind of chipping away at, at that defense theory where Derek Chauvin feels that his knee was adequate force and what he did was necessary because in his mind George was a sizable guy and he posed a threat to him and his other officers so in my opinion um the crowd has been deemed non-threatening in the eyes of the lieutenant that's part of the defense theory these witnesses have said that nobody was threatening these officers. And you can hear on the video that there's no threats being made to these officers. They're just begging them to get off. So the def- part of the defense's theory is crumbling. And now we have these other law enforcement officials who are testifying against Derek Chauvin that what they saw on that video was not good. So, you know, I I don't know what the jury's thinking. We never know what the jury is thinking. But what I found interesting, I was watching something today and there was a seasoned uh, retired criminal defense attorney there who has done cases where police officers have been charged with things of this nature and obviously other suspects that are not cops. And he said, um, (laughs) he said in his opinion, it would be doing Derek Chauvin a disservice to himself and his client if he's not having a conversation that a conviction is imminent. But you just never know how these cases are going to go. But I took that to heart because you have a criminal defense attorney who's been doing this for a very long time or who did this for a very long time and knows you know, what's probably going to be the outcome or what should be the outcome. But you just never know because the defense still has not put on their case, and we don't know who they're going to call, but we do know that this is going to be the battle of the experts. We haven't heard from the medical examiner yet. We have not heard from forensic experts, and we have not heard from any of the officials that train law enforcement on restraint. So we have a lot of people to hear from. But outside of the paramedics, the person I really want to hear from is the medical examiner because the cause of death is listed as, you know, it's it's an interesting cause of death. So I know the defense is going to try to chip away at that. And the chief of police, who uh, I thought was coming today, but was not. So I'm assuming... (laughs) I don't like to assume, but I'm going to assume that that chief of police will probably be coming in on Monday. And this is the person that a lot of us saw on TV speaking about this. And this is the person that ultimately decide, decided to fire Derek Chauvin and his um, fellow officers after viewing that video footage. And they were fired pretty quickly. They were fired the next day after this. And You know, Derek Chauvin was put behind bars pretty fast after that. So, you know, a lot of things moved pretty quickly after that video footage was coming out and after the witnesses were interviewed. So eager to see what next week brings. And just one more thing before I end this. I know it was a lot. and I'm sticking by this, I am pretty confident that Derek Chauvin is taking a stand in his own defense. And I think he's going to do that after the police uh, training officials come on because he has to hear what they are going to say in relation to his training. And then, you know, part of his theory is he felt what he did was appropriate to restrain George Floyd because part of his defense is based on feelings and nobody else can explain Derek Chauvin's feelings but him, his defense attorney cannot do that. So only he can describe in that moment why he felt that this restraint was necessary. And I feel that the only way and the only person that can do that is him. So that's why I feel he's taken the stand. He's taken a lot of notes during this. Now, he could be doing that as a show because it looks like his um, attorney is like a one-man show, but we know there's other people behind the scenes, lots of others helping him put this case together. But I feel right now pretty confident that Derek Chauvin is going to take the stand. And as a juror, I would really want to hear from him. Um, I would really want to hear from him um, after seeing all of this up to this point and obviously more things to come. um, We need to hear from the, from the horse's mouth of why you felt that this was necessary. And, you know, you need to explain your, explain yourself. So, That is all I have. I know this was a long podcast, but I really wanted to give you guys um, some key things that stood out in my mind and what I saw this week. So I will see you guys or talk to you guys soon. Good night.